What's funny is they use this sort of far off setting for some laughs, but mostly the, the laughter is directed at themselves. Here's how we can be uh, over the top. Here's how we can take ourselves too seriously. Here's how we sometimes mistreat women or mistreat marriage or, or, or whatever vice they're focusing on. And they put these up there and use Utah or use Mormonism really as a kind of setting to make fun of themselves. So unlike what we see in the US, the focus in these uh, plays and musicals is uh, satirizing the French culture and not satirizing members of the church necessarily. It is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall and a very rare occurrence actually here in the Cultural Hall. We have three guests uh, who are going to be spending the time with us. Uh, I may introduce them myself or may have them introduce themselves. Well, let's do it this way. I'll go as my screen goes. Uh, we first get to know a little bit about Daryl Lee. Welcome, Daryl. Hello. Hi, Richie. So, so uh, this is my favorite thing, especially when I'm interviewed, when people are like, give us a brief synopsis of your complete and full life in like 30 seconds so people still pay attention. Dad in the Air Force, lived in France, Colorado, Arizona, uh, Florida, Georgia, California, Colorado. Love love France. Uh, French professor for 25 years at BYU, like baseball, baking, um, and my co-writers. They're great people. Love them. Okay. Uh, one of those co-writers is Heather Belknap. Heather, same, same chore to you. Sure. I'm a Utah-California hybrid. I went to graduate school at BYU and also at the University of Kansas, and I'm an art historian. I particularly am interested in France and women and art and fashion and uh, social justice and compassion. Those are kind of my um, my things. And then finally, and I hopefully you're uh, catching the the through line, the theme that each of these two have mentioned so far. We go to Corey Cropper. I'm assuming that I'm saying the last name correct. I didn't get that chance to ask you. Yes, and I am a French professor at BYU, and uh, uh, my I'm, I'm the descendant of LDS people on one side of the family and not LDS people on the other. So I'm a a uh, cynical member of the church, active <laughs> member. I, and I wish there was a term uh, for cynical active member, something that we could like combine cynical and active. There are plenty of jokes that I would like to fill in here, but where I don't know your politics or uh, you guys all together that well, I'll abstain from that at this point. But uh, that cynical kind of active member of the church, I think I can align with that for sure. You guys uh, have come together because... Uh, of a love of France and a, and a uniting with the the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I should take a quick second and shout out my friend Heather over at the University of Illinois Press who makes this interview uh, possible. We've done bunches of stuff with them, and so a shout out to, to her and also to them. You guys have uh, co-authored, or I guess when it's three people, it's still co-authored, uh, yes. a book called Marianne Meets the Mormons, uh, that looks at how 19th century French observers engaged with the idea of Mormonism in order to reframe their own pro cultural preoccupations, which my eyes sort of glossed over. Who wants to tell me why we decided <laughs> to do this? <laughs> Go for it, Heather. 
Sure. Well, we, uh, the three of us are all specialists in 19th century France, and we are all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, work at BYU. And so after, you know, working in our kind of own fields for 20 or so years, you know, started thinking, let's, let's see what the, the, the French were, were, um, you know, doing with Mormons? Are they really interested in, in Mormonism? And about 10 years ago, we um, started looking into this in earnest and just found um, that they were kind of obsessed with us uh, in surprising ways. And I just found lots of material, uh, books, um, illustrations, plays, uh, social commentary, you know, political uh, treatises. They just, you know, were, were fascinated with us. Mm -hmm. So so in context for folks, because I think it seems silly, but I think some people still get uh, tripped up with like 19th century means the 1800s. And I yes. know that I, I know that maybe that seems silly to someone who studies like that. But I always have to go, OK, it's the pre-century, pre whatever the number that we're talking about. Um, we don't hear or at least in the in the mainstream of the church very much about the church in France during this time. Uh, you know, I, I think as it goes, it's the narrative is, well, we're we're sort of in the Midwest and then we we came west and then we we hated everybody until we could get, you know, good and strong. And then maybe we sort of dabble in a little bit of like the Pacific Islands and then kind of we talk a little bit about like the missions to England. But but very, very absent in that is is France. And you're saying that there's a huge uh, amount of information about that. So, Corey, let me ask you what what was it about this topic that got you excited to be like, okay, I'll join this band of crazies and write about this. Well, let me let me first maybe I should explain the title briefly. We have the word Marianne, and it is not about Gilligan's Island. <laughs> uh, this is Marianne is the symbol of France in the same way that Uncle Sam is a symbol of the U.S. Okay, Marianne is a symbol of the French Republic. And, you know, when you if you look at most histories of the church about other countries, what you'll see is here's when the first missionaries went. Here's when the first stake was formed. Here's how many people are there. And that doesn't interest us at all. <laughs> uh, what we were interested in doing is saying, how do uh, people who live in other countries view us instead of how do we view us in other countries? If mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So that's why this is exciting, because. It's looking at the way the French in the 19th century imagined us it, 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 and they create an image of us and then they use that image of us to work through their own issues of feminism, of socialism, of what the family should look like, what marriage should be like, etc. So so that's that's when that became really interesting, because as a French professor, that's what interests me is not it's less actually. Uh, you know, the sort of history of the church over there and more. How how does Mormonism as an idea work when we take it out of the U.S.? So a follow-up question I have about then the Marianne perspective as far as that goes, because I'll be honest, I didn't know that that's what it was. Is that pretty common knowledge that that sort of equivalence of Marianne to Uncle Sam that? Yeah, in France, in French studies, Marianne is on the French stamp, on the French, on French uh, coinage. Marianne is Every year, there's a new person selected to be Marianne officially in the French uh, in in France. Hmm. So it, it's as well known, if not better known, in France than Uncle Sam is here in the U.S. 
Uh, and I appreciate it too, because sometimes if you guys remember the old movie, that thing you do where they had to explain the name of their band, the O'Neaters every time. And it was like, no, they're, we're the wonders. And they're like, no, go with something that people understand. What I like about um, just even the title of the book uh, is that people can go, oh, okay, now I can ask a safe question about this, assuming that they know nothing about uh, France or the French people. And and quickly you can be able to say, hey, and this is what this is, how this interacts with this. And then they can quickly go, I would like to know more or no, thank you. Thank you for answering my question about what the title of that was. And then they can kind of move on. So so Daryl, then you, you come to this band of, of folks and what excites you about this time period, this interaction, this this work that has come together? Well, one thing I'm interested in is France is going through all kinds of changes in the 19th century, political changes, social changes. Uh, and it goes through lots of revolutions and it's trying to figure out what it is as a, as a nation, like what should we look like? How should we create what and what image should we create ourselves? Should we be a republic? Should we be an empire? Should we go back to monarchy and have kings after the big French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. And in all of this turmoil, they're looking uh, for ways of, of rebuilding their society and thinking about the family, the things that Corey talked about, the family, the, the, the political structure, economics, what, you know, what's the role of women in society? Should they work? Should they not work? Uh, what is their power in, in marriage, for example? And all of those things, when they're trying to think through this, hypothesizing what things could be, Mormonism shows up on the map and really fascinates them. And if I could go back for a second, the church is in France starting around 1849 uh, and even has a, a, a short-lived uh, mission there that, that lasts until the early 1860s, I think. Maybe Heather could correct me here. But the point is, is that it starts well before then, and it moves on all the way up into World War I, where the French are writing these articles and thinking about Mormons in this kind of artificial way, like Corey suggested. Uh, and so I'm interested in the way that um, France is trying to figure things out for itself uh, and, and looking over at this, this faraway movement and saying, do we want to be like them or do we not want to be like them? Um, that's this interesting model of, of a family with polygamy or, you know, we're colonizing North Africa. We're not doing a very good job of it. How come the Mormons are doing such a good job there in the Utah Territory and up and down the Rocky Mountains all the way into Mexico? What's the deal with that? Um, that the French were quite aware of what was going on. They have a very healthy uh, uh, media culture at this time, newspapers, people traveling throughout the world and writing the travel narratives. And you realize that they've kind of brought to life this other world and they're bringing it back to their, their fellow citizens and um, and talking about us. I mean, when the word Mormon is showing up in parliamentary debates on divorce in the 1880s, right there, like, can you imagine people talking about um, some small sect, religious sect way off in, in some you know, corner of Europe in our own U.S. capital in the 19th century? You know, think about the what that would mean in, in our own context. It's really interesting. It's 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 uh, and it's kind of fun because I had this I had this um, colleague in France who would say these outlandish things. He he said once at this dinner uh, in this dinner conversation, "I'm going to do a history of France in the 19th century using plaster." You know, plaster. Okay. Like how 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 can plaster explain the 19th century in France? And in a sense, there is because we treat Mormons as a kind of mirror for 
the way that we see the, the French using Mormons as a mirror for their own issues, um, it becomes this marker at all of these moments of change and great societal questions in, in an unexpected way. So it's really fun that way. So I want to take one and give me an idea of what this maybe looks like. It can be divorce or it can be something else, but I want it to be something that that the three of you can kind of weigh in and, and with the expertise that you have sort of unwrap or unpack this for me. Like what, what would be a thing that um, the French people of this time were using the Mormons as an example of or to explain or to clarify who they were or whatever that like that we would want to know about like i guess the the not the the not rude but the but the very too poignant question is so why do we need this and and unwrap it maybe with uh, one of these particular topics that you guys get into I jump in. Yeah, Heather, let's yeah, do I, su I suggest that we go right to polygamy because that was probably kind of the primary issue um, or um, element of Mormonism, I guess, that um, fascinated the French. And um, this goes to gender roles. This goes to changes to family, to divorce uh, laws and so on. So I think um, that um, is kind of the most uh, compelling and kind of continuous through line through um, this narrative that we're going to see in illustrations and books and newspapers um, and the like. Yeah. So Heather wanted to start real light and just go right for polygamy. I know. So. <laughs> yeah, so, and Rich, if I can jump in just to tail uh, and, and Heather can, she'll fill in here because she knows more about this than I do. But let me give you an example. There's a, a French writer named Olympe Audois. She travels to the U.S. She travels to Utah. She visits uh, LDS households. She goes back to France and lectures, and she says, you know, the, the, the Mormons, that's the word she used, they have it figured out in ways we don't here in France. We have men who have wives and mistresses, and those mistresses are hidden, and their children are not recognized and don't have financial support and end up poor and in deplorable conditions. We need to look at what they're doing. They're at least open and honest about things. And guess what? They aren't enslaved, like some of my uh, others have said. They live, and she talks about her experience living for a time in Utah with, within, and visiting with uh, these families. So, so that's an example of how that plays out. And she gives these prominent lectures. The lectures are picked up in Paris by illustrators who both praise and mock her. But that that's one example then of how. And, and then there are eventually changes happen to the French law around uh, illegitimate children, around uh, family that take this, that are kind of grow out of this movement from the late 1860s. Hmm. Now, this is really curious what, what Corey's saying. One of the interesting things is it's not just a, a comparative uh, move like Olympe Odouard makes that Corey's discussing. Um, we have these stories in which you have these French characters who are Mormon when you don't have a real Mormon or church presence by by virtue of, you know, the mission being closed and not having a lot of converts. But you have characters who are French and they're Mormon and they're middle class. You know, in the early 1880s, the story of Dr. Paul Guignon Beck and his three wives from Brit Brittany living in this Paris suburb, um, you know, the high life. And this is a guy who's invested in politics and he's well trained and respected as this doctor and it seems pretty normalized. And that's not the kind of thing that you would have seen in American culture in the 1880s, where 
you know, Mormonism is one of the twin relics of barbarism. You've got slavery and Mormonism that the Republican Party wants to, to destroy. Uh, that's not happening in France. And polygamy is one of those places where it, it works out in, in, su in surprising ways. So, so why is that? Why, why is there such a different cultural approach towards polygamy in the United States and towards Mormons and, and specifically in Utah, where it's, it's, it's able to change the culture and, and be reflected in, you know, that and other ways that the laws have changed in France? Why, why such a difference? The simple answer is that uh, it's so far away and so distant that it doesn't pose any real kind of threat. You know, in, in the U.S., uh, white Protestant monogamous uh, capitalist Easterners were defining themselves against uh, people who lived in Utah, members of the LDS Church. Right? That's that's the foreigner. They're very different, and we want to set ourselves up as the antithesis of that. And in France, they were okay saying, "Hey, what what can we learn from them? How are we like them?" Hmm. And and that it that my colleague Daryl said that that gets normalized. So or the LDS characters are normalized. Friend, there's this great article uh, written in the 1880s in a, in a satirical newspaper that says, people think that the capital of Mormonism is Salt Lake. Not true, it's Paris. <laughs> Where do you see so many uh, husband, husbands with multiple spouses? And he's talking about mistresses, you know, or this this sort of where we overdo things and everything is 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 hyperbolic it's paris it's not it's not salt lake city so that's an example of that hmm. you Darryl, know it looked like you were going to jump in back on that i'm just we've had such a good time with this and i'm going to force my colleagues to talk each about their own uh, contributions here but you know not too long ago uh, the book of mormon musical on broadway was all the rage right mm -hmm. The French did that four times in the 19th century. And Corey can talk about this. And he's discovered musical scores, these vaudevilles that were played, but then also imagery, this really fascinating uh, body of visual work. Heather is an art historian, and each of them could talk about things that no one in the United States was imagining and, and really have been, these things have been forgotten for well over a century, almost 150 years but they were quite lively in circulating uh, the sounds, the music, the ideas, and these images uh, in this rich culture there. And it's been entirely forgotten. And, and we had this wonderful opportunity to kind of excavate it and bring it back to the surface. So they should both talk about uh, things that they discovered that, that you would never have expected. Deal. Let's take a quick break. When we come back in the second block, we'll get right into that. We'll take a quick break. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. BestDJinUtah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now... 
just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. And with your monetary support, you help us to be able to continue to exist. What now with 644 episodes going strong over a decade of doing this? Uh, we could not do it without your support. And remember that if you become a Patreon saint, you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group where only Patreon saints hang out, and we would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, Daryl, you queued it up quite well, so I think we go ladies first to Heather. Uh, I want to talk about this sort of excavation, this these, this imagery that, that you found as you were researching for this. And then... Uh, I, I guess I'm going to preemptively ask the question, is this something that if you weren't able to look at it through a Mormon lens, that you would know that that's what these images are depicting? And you're welcome to answer that either at the front of this or if you want to weave that in. Sure. So, uh, yeah, we discovered a number of fascinating illustrations of uh, a, a book that was translated. It was first published uh, in, in the United States and then translated into French, contained the first illustrations um, of Mormons um, that France had seen there in the early 50s. And um, I don't know, there's 17 or 20 or so of those in this book that very much relate to French culture. And you would kind of only kind of see those if you had a, you know, a trained I guess for 19th century French um, French art, uh, and they very much reflect what's going on in France rather than you know what's going on in the United States. Uh, we found um, this you know fantastic print uh, that we start the book um, with, um, where Victor Hugo, who most of the, the listeners are well aware of, he's quoted in conference and and everybody's seen Les Mis um, on Broadway. Um, <laughs> he is being approached by three Mormon missionaries who are offering him on a silver platter these miniature Mormon women and uh, basically inviting him to become a Mormon to join us in. Uh, you know, in Utah, and to sire a new generation. Uh, and it's so interesting, you know, from, from our perspective of, you know, wanting to be cultured and refined and so on. But for, for the French, you know, it was a commentary on uh, Hugo's politics, his, you know, his place within the cultural sphere there, you know, his losing his virility. Uh, so, so these images, which had so much resonance there, kind of beyond the so-called Mormon, uh, you know, Mormon question that we often focus on here in the United States. So those are a couple of instances. And then your your second question was, remind yeah. me. 
I, so I feel like you, you, you answered it pretty well at the beginning just was, is this something that uh, uh, someone who isn't affiliated with the church would go, oh, this is clearly a very Mormon thing that's being depicted, or do you have to have that kind of trained focus to, to be like, oh, I get it. This is a symbol or a likeness or a, that kind of thing. Yeah, not necessarily. And that's one of the key arguments in our book is, is again, that, you know, it draws on, um, symbols and imagery and and just the visual material culture of the French more than of the American Mormons. And so oftentimes, I think if if you saw that image out of context, there wasn't a caption, you would just think it was describing something that was happening, you know, in the streets of, of Paris. Uh, and so it's, it's certainly, um, it's a very different, very different iconography than what you see coming out of England or what you come, you see coming out of the United States, which is mostly what we've looked at in terms of our, you know, visual representations. I want to get to where uh, we allow Corey to share, but this question comes to mind at this point, because in the last few years, let's say last decade, uh, we know about that horrible tragedy in France at the particular French newspaper with the comic that was done. What it it, it doesn't seem like that happens in all all countries, you know, based on th- these images and something like that. What what is it about the French people that they they put so much into this satire and symbolism that that other countries just don't do and that that can be open to anyone i think Corey's probably best positioned to answer that one well i I, you know the french have a long tradition of freedom of speech and uh particularly uh they have a long a a very long tradition of satirical newspapers Mm -hmm. so we know about the Charlie Hebdo newspaper that led to these attacks because of, and it was because of the religious images they published, right? Um, uh, but that tradition of satirical newspapers poking fun at religion goes back to the French Revolution, uh, if not a little before, uh, although that was more covert and clandestine before. And so that is part of what it is to be French and um that same newspaper that provoked the, the the violent and tragic response also had images of members of our church in it. Hmm. it there was a, a small uh, uh, image of French people welcoming different religious uh, people to their home. And they say, oh, no, it's the Mormons hide the alcohol. <laughs> that, that was, but they, every, every religion has a taboo, and they were kind of making fun of all of those taboos in this in this article that that ended up causing that or provoking that attack. So then turning the conversation to where we sort of queued it up earlier with Heather had talking about the visual images, uh, mm-hmm. you sort of excavated these um, these musical pieces or these vaudevillian acts mm-hmm. that were done in, to satirize the church. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And what's interesting is they don't satirize the church. Oh, they really? The, yeah. They use the church, uh, but to satirize themselves. Okay. So, the characters that are in Salt Lake, like one of them, 1875, the prophet is a Mormon named Oscar, a French, a Frenchman named Oscar, who's who's come to Salt Lake and managed to work his way up and become prophet. And at the end of the, the play, they all go back to Paris. Uh, and so this is what's what's funny is they use this sort of far off setting for some laughs, but mostly the, the laughter is directed at themselves. Here's how we can be uh, 
over the top. Here's how we can take ourselves too seriously. Here's how we sometimes mistreat women or mistreat marriage or or, or whatever vice they're focusing on. And they put these up there and use Utah or use Mormonism really as a kind of setting to make fun of themselves. So unlike what we see in the U.S., the focus in these uh, plays and musicals is uh, satirizing the French culture and not satirizing members of the church necessarily. So, so then as you look at, and as you study those things um, and people are able to witness them, do they then, is it reflected that then we see that their culture goes, Oh, Hey, we didn't realize that we did this. And then change occurs because of those things. Yeah. One of, one of the, one of the plays has a Mormon polygamous wives who get upset at their husband and they re- rebel but they rebel in a very French way. They organize, they have a, a parade, a sort of manifestation, they call it in France. Uh, and they have a list of demands that they make of the men. And so, and this is around the same time that women's groups are organizing in Paris to give more rights to women. Hmm. So even though this is set in Salt Lake, uh, they're very French characters. And that little bit of distance allows them to sort of laugh at themselves. Uh, and and uh, that I think is is more effective. Uh, you know, the Moliere once said that if you want to change people's behavior, don't preach a, a lesson or don't preach a sermon to them. Make fun of them. People don't mind being mean; they don't want to appear ridiculous. And so, this is a tradition that runs through French theater, and that I think. The, the the playwrights are using Mormonism to make fun of themselves, to make fun of French behaviors. So, so then bringing it to, to, to modern day and using the example that was sort of brought up, the idea that so many members of the church get super offended at the Book of Mormon musical, you would posit that maybe that's, that's not something that we should do or, or is this something different entirely? I think it's different. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. tradition and the way the uh, the church has been re- represented in the U.S. is very different than it is in France. Although I was happy to see the way the church responded to that in New York, which was, hey, you've seen the musical, now read the book, right? Sure, they, sure. of, and I, I, I think as a people, generally speaking, this is one thing I really love about our faith tradition is we don't take ourselves too seriously most of the time. We're able to take a step back and 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 laugh and regroup and, you know, move forward. How, how do you see these things um, change over the time? A century is a, a, a large swath of time. Is there something that begins in the, in the mid 19th century that by the time it plays out? Cause if, if, if I've got my dates, right, it's near the, the end of the 19th century that polygamy ends in the state of Utah. And we have sort of everything like that. Do we see that transition reflected within these writings, these artistic representations, these theatrical things uh, in France, or does it take a little time to, to catch up? It, it, it does reflect what's happening in France. So the early, um, representations of members of our church or our ideas in French are around the social question. This is Daryl's really strong in this area, but do, do we want a, a socialist system? Do we want a communist system? Do we want a utopian system? Uh, do we want a capitalist system? So that's where Mormons are brought up in that early. And, and that's because France itself is going through revolutions, 1848, 1852, 
and trying to rethink how their government's going to be. By the end, the real question in the 1870s, 80s is what's the family going to look like in a republic? We've left the empire behind. We're now a republic. What do we need? And so that's what they're going to focus on in, in LDS circles. So then, Daryl, what does the family look like in France? And as we look at the, the last part of the 19th century, that 1870 and, and to the turn of the century. Let me shift a little bit because polygamy becomes much, much more important over the course of this. And that's where you begin to see a lot more French characters, not always just French travelers to Utah coming back. Early on, it is very much uh, uh, Mormonism. The response to Mormonism is embedded in the, the social questions the French are asking. So this is a moment when you've got these groups trying to recreate society to favor working class people as industrialization expands and people are suffering economically. It's the moment that you have the invention of, and this is a very bad word, especially two days after the midterm elections, <laughs> socialism. Uh, but this is a socialism that's not associated with Karl Marx. These are often Christian groups that are breaking off from say the Catholic church or workers, people, people getting together from working class uh, parts of the society and saying, we need to help ourselves in different kinds of ways, spread the wealth a little bit. At the same time as you have these wildly fantastic um, utopian uh, groups, you know, this guy named Fourier saying, let's create a new industrial society. It's got to have exactly 1,666 people, and they'll live in a little kind of industrial cooperative community um, or Saint Saint Simon, Simon, Saint Simon, um, the Saint Simonians who are saying, "Yes, why do we need marriage? Let's just have open kinds of family relationships, and we can share uh, sexual partners and spouses and raise children together." Um, or the Icarians, who are all about working class groups, and the Icarians actually are a French group that end up purchasing Nauvoo from the church. I don't know if you knew that. Hmm. So a French group took over the main buildings that the church owned in Nauvoo a couple of years after the, the saints left, the pioneers left and trudged across the plains to the, the Salt Lake Valley. There's a lot of interaction between French and American groups at this time. And the French look at this and they say, hey, what's this religion over here? They have cooperative farms, um, uh, agricultural kinds of projects that require people to put in their property. That sounds like common property. That sounds a little bit like these French socialist and communist groups. The most important book on socialist and communist movements in France, dealing with all of these French movements, its longest chapter is on a non-French movement. It's on the Mormons. Mm. Uh, and it's about these social reformers. That's in the spirit. That's in the, the the moment between 1830 and about 1852 or so. But as the society evolves and it goes through these evolutions and changes in political regimes and leadership and is dealing with a new kind of world, those issues are not the forefront. And yet Mormonism still has this malleability, this flexibility to provide a mirror to these other issues like the divorce, the family structure, uh, marriage, those feminism, uh, those kinds of things that come up later in the century. So that doesn't quite answer your question um, directly, but it shows this evolution over time based on what's most topical. Heather, I think it was you that that uh, related this to sort of like an excavation, like we think yes. of like an Indiana Jones kind of thing. And, and my mind immediately went there. So given that as sort of the setup, as you guys um, study this time, um, 
what was the defined? What was the, if you'll forgive the crudeness of this comparison, the holy grail of the thing that, that you, um, each of you found and, and what is its importance? Wow. Uh, and we'll make you go first. So the other guys have time to think. <laughs> so, so completely unfair. I mean, for me, I don't think it was just one particular um, image or artwork. I mean, the the one that I mentioned about Hugo was perfect because that speaks to, uh, you know, if, if anyone's going to know one writer from 19th century France in, you know, in the United States or even in France, really, is going to be Victor Hugo. So the fact that, you know, you see this, this um, and it's a full page um, print of him really demonstrates that um we we mattered in you know in in ways um to them so so if i had to put up one of the the images that would would definitely be it i think also the plays you know were um were huge and i guess Corey will want to claim that one so yeah you can't say all of them heather if you pick all of the things and <laughs> you leave nothing for the other you can't go plays Corey. you have to do something else well, I what I Heather helped me find those plays, by the way, and they're in the, these archives, you know, big box, and I'm digging through the the scripts from the 1870s were still handwritten, wow. and I found a couple of them in there. But what I found in addition to that was the music, and uh, I actually had a student record one the music from one of the uh, plays from an 1890 play called Japheth's Twelve Wives, and it's it's just great. Uh, so that was a that was a fun find finding that the music. Is that something that someone can hear? Is that something that's available? Yeah, if you if you go to, uh, can I plug that? Of course. Uh, Mormons in Paris. <laughs> so all one word, mormonsinparis.byu.edu. And you can listen to the music there. Yeah, when we when people do those shameless plugs, we 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 call it climbing up on the Ramiumptum. So you're welcome to climb. <laughs> okay, I'll come down now. But yeah, I, thank you. Thanks thank for that you. opportunity. It's mormonsinparis.byu. Cool. Great. All right, Daryl, we gave you as much time as we could, but now you got to answer the question. Well, I'm going to answer it with a two-part uh, answer. First of all, what Heather was suggesting is it's not always that one thing. What was so fascinating, uh, our work has 750 footnotes. There are these searchable databases that were scanned in part because the French government was spurred by Google's book project, you know, Google saying, we're going to scan all the world's library. And they said, the heck you are. That's <laughs> our cultural patrimony. We're we're claiming a responsibility for that. And, and it was about the time that we started our project. And so we were able to do uh, these scan, use these scanned documents, newspapers and books from the 19th century in France, in French, uh, to search. And we found the term came up thousands and thousands of times. And so in a strange sense, the big find is how massive and diffuse it was. In fact, how, how much currency the terms Mormon and Mormonism had in the French 19th century. But if I were to pick one, it would probably be uh, an author that all three of us have uh, analyzed and written on and we love. He's a satirical author. His name is Albert Robida. Uh, Robida wrote these these works kind of like Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, Saturn and Farandul, and then my favorite is uh, called The 20th Century. And it's this futuristic story written in 1883, and he imagines the world in 1953, right? So he's going ahead in time 70 years or so. And in this world, um, 
the Germans occupy half of the United States, the Chinese occupy the other half, and they've squeezed the Mormons out of the Rocky Mountains. And the Mormons have gone and they now live in and occupy England right across the English Channel from France. Hmm. And the English have uh, absconded to uh, India, right? So it's this really strange kind of reimagined world of of aggression and occupation, a new kind of geography, world geography. And the French are wondering about these Mormons across the uh, English Channel because they have this, this sort of societal regime of polygamy in order to have political office. The number of wives that you have dictates how high you can go up in the, the house of, of bishops, um, not the house of, of lords or commons. Um, women are police in the police and army, they have professions. And so it's this radicalized new world for women in which they, uh, train themselves and they have their own stock market. Um, and it's a Mormon society and it's cosmopolitan in, in, in a sense, and it's got colonies out there and Mormons have wives from around the world. And this is much more of a mirror of France's own effort at colonizing uh, across the latter part of the 19th century, what they call their civilizing mission to go out and, and bring light and uh, their superior technology and thought to the rest of the world. Um, so this the story by Robida, which is really quite fantastical, I was reading it for my dissertation for a completely different topic. And I'll never forget being in the, the historical library of the city of Paris. And I get to the end of the chapter that I was studying years and years ago, and there's this chapter on forced Mormonization in England. What what is this? <laughs> so Albert Robida's 20th century. That that's the work that I think was fab fabulous. And as an illustrator and this this novelist, he puts these two media together. And Heather has analyzed these images very closely, um, and it connects to things that Corey's talking about on divorce and the same time period as these vaudevilles. So that's my work. Albert and the, and the cover, the cover, Richie, is an image of, of the book is an image by Albert Robida. Oh, cool. Cool. Yes. And and I would just say to go back to that, you know, future of, of, of Mormonism that they've taken over the UK, the illustrations are just a hoot. You have uh, women who are the prison wardens who are imprisoning men for remaining celibate. <laughs> and uh, you have uh, women who are the leading politicians and again, sort of taking over that realm. And, and, and it reflects the cultural anxieties that were widespread in both the United States you know, and, and in Europe about women gaining the vote, women you know, moving into some more of these public um, spaces. But for the French, you know, they saw kind of the natural outcome of polygamy and the kind of accrual of women, that women were going to eventually kind of leave the home in mass and rule the world. <laughs> and we're seeing it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to take another break. And when we come back in the third block, there are uh, three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. We'll ask those of you. Plus, I got a couple other. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast and it's beautiful. So let's make sure your computer's ready to run it. Bring your PC into any PC Laptops right now at PCLaptops.com. PCLaptops.com. 
Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email. It's great because it never closes down. Middle of the night, you're thinking, oh, you know what? I have been wondering about France in the 19th century. I do have a question. Contact at theculturalhall.com is where you can send those. Love to get them. And uh, thank you to everyone who sends them. Even if all you're saying is, hey, that was a really great episode. Thank you for doing that. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. So now for the hard hitting questions about your personal feelings and beliefs on polygamy. No, I'm teasing. Uh, uh, although this question I, I do think is sort of hard hitting um, and, and the question is I, I think that for some who see the title I think their eyes instantly gloss over and that I don't mean that as any sort of insult to you guys because I as we've been chatting I am fascinated by your scholarship I wouldn't take the time to visit with you if I was like oh this pointless worthless anything like that but I think that there aren't a, that the amount of people that take the time to really think why would that be interesting what could i possibly gain from learning more about that why does a book like that exist i think is at least pertinent enough to pose that question to the three of you the circles that you run in are fascinated by something that you like this the greater broader church membership or world in general what do they gain from what you've culminated you know, we hope the point of education is to see something from a different perspective. And that's charity too, right? And so we hope if people do choose to look at this book, and we know it's not going to appeal to every member of the church, right? Uh, but but if they do, that they'll come away with this, having an understanding of how others see us and how others saw us in a different time. And that to me is... Uh, really valuable. I hope too, they'll have fun. The images in here are really great. And Heather did such a good job of showing how images, French images of members of our church look a lot like French, uh, famous French paintings and, and other things that they will have seen. Many of, of your listeners will have seen in art history books or in museums, uh, if they've ever been to, 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 to Paris and to the Louvre. So those are a couple of things that we hope will be footholds to people who might want to 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 delve into this. Daryl or Heather, you want to add into that? I uh, completely agree with Corey. This capacity for seeing yourself from the outside is really critical. Uh, I think imagination is central to faith, and part of the imagination is imagining oneself. I think you make yourself more uh, human, and you can make yourself more humane by. Um, putting yourself in another's in another's place. And so it's it's happening doubly so here because we're seeing how the French perceive us. Your readers might be interested in that. I mean laughing at themselves. I know that uh, our parents have been reading this book and are they've been laughing at some of these images like the Victor Hugo the 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 illustration of Victor Hugo turning down the this offer of wives. It's kind of funny how you perceive that. Our students chuckle at this the story in Robida, Albert Robida's 20th century, the when you're celibate, you're thrown in jail. I mean, <laughs> that sounds a lot like our culture right now, right? The pressures that have always been there on uh, uh, marriage of, of young people of marriageable age. It, it's good to sort of laugh at that a little bit and see this pressure to do it. The, the celibates who are, are thrown in jail by those prison, prison wardens, if they don't accept a forced marriage, 
They're sent to a marriage colony in the South Pacific and are forced to marry multiple wives. I mean, this sort of inversion of that whole system allows you to take a little distance from your own sometimes overly serious or sober um, worldview. I think that's quite healthy. Yeah. Those marriage marriage colonies, very similar to a young single adult ward. I'll say it because you guys didn't say it. That's fine. I'll, 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 step, I'll step into that. Heather, any, anything that you wish to add to Corey or to Daryl? Yeah, again, uh, concur with both of them and what you were just saying about relevancy. I think that your um, listeners and hopefully readers um, of the book will see that a lot of these conversations that were happening in the 19th century in France are also happening in the 21st century around the world about globalization, about gender, uh, about social structures, um, and so on. And I think it provides, you know, a a way to kind of open up some of those conversations and see those connections between um, past and present. And then for those that, you know, are, are in, in the church that are really thinking about um, missionary efforts and our, our place in the world, knowing some of the history, you know, how we were perceived, you know, for a hundred years in France uh, should be, you know, it can be instructive. It can go back to that that point that Corey was making about education and um, the more we know um, about how representations and cultural productions um, are um, kind of indicative of, of, of our, our um, place uh, in a culture, then we, we can take that and, and do something with that. And we hope, you know, we hope that this is also something that will move people to to think about um, Mormonism, you know, as it was called in the 19th century in a global way mm -hmm. and think, you know, how, you know, were Mormons being talked about in, uh, you know, in Japan uh, in the 1950s or in Brazil in the 1980s and, you know, encourage more of an outward looking um, direction. Something that strikes me just in visiting with you guys uh, for the last time that we've had, uh, the passion that you guys have for this particular subject is exciting. Even if there are admittedly times that I'm like, I'm not sure I know exactly what they're talking about right now. The passion that exudes from you guys, I, I think is infectious. And and for me it is one of the things that I love being able to visit with those who create anything because you can, you can just feel that passion. And, you know, as Corey sort of mentioned the, the idea of knowing uh, where other people come from, the idea of charity, the uh, idea of learning about other people, I think just makes us better people. So uh, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask each of those questions to each of you. Uh, and uh, we'll go Daryl first on the on the first one, then Heather first on the second one, and then Corey, you get to be first on the last one. So the first question is, uh, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I am an instructor in my home uh, ward, an elders quorum instructor. All right, Heather? Relief Society instructor. All right. I'm seeing a theme here, Corey, if you're an instructor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just got released from a YSA ward, so I know what you're talking about. My wife and I were in a YSA state for about five years, and now we are uh, teaching five-year-olds in primary. Yeah. Okay. Three teachers. Now here's the, the second question, Heather, you get to field this first. If you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Wow. You mean for myself or yep. just for, yeah, for another, yeah, yeah, for, no, no, for no, another for woman? For you in particular, for you in particular. 
uh, counselor in the bishopric. Yeah, you, I, I, you and I, Heather, we are kindred spirits and we can talk about everything that that is. Not at this time, because Corey's got to answer the question. Uh, tell me, if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? You know, uh, I would love to be a counselor with Heather. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, I love uh, I love being doing ward music, choir director. That's been one of my favorite callings of all time. I love it. All right, Daryl. Yeah, uh, librarian. Media, what is it, a media center now? Yeah. And by the way, I'd have Heather as the bishop. Um, yeah. But that's that's another topic. Yeah, yeah. I I I I can't walk away from this a little bit. Do you think that we are at a, a, a in a in a time? This is speculative, and I understand with employment. If you guys decide to not answer this question, <laughs> uh, but do you do you see at a time where at least in a counselorship that we will see women start to serve? You know that bishops are encouraged now to have women participate more in councils. So I think yes. that's and and to have women be there to to be with the young people when they're meeting with bishops. Uh, and so I think that's already happening. Yeah, but a formalization, I guess, is and I'll take that as hey, we don't want to answer the rest of this question. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. The third question that we ask everyone, uh, I ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains. And Corey, you're going first. What is your favorite part of your faith? For me, this has changed over the years, but it's definitely the, the sense of community. And, and just being with people who have a very different life than I do and being in the trenches with them and being able to practice Christianity. All right, Daryl. Uh, I would say exactly the same thing. And I think that I didn't quite understand it growing up as a, as a member of two, uh, my parents converted when I was about seven or eight. So I have some recollection, uh, but seeing uh, the strength that comes from that uh, community of faith that brings together people of very, very different backgrounds. And it was intensely experienced uh, on my mission, right? Where we taught people from, 30 different countries and we saw a very different kind of world. And then I can sort of reconvert that into, uh, you know, a Wasatch Front kind of church membership and fellowship that I, I see the, the blessings that come from that, that, the same things that Corey talked about. All right, Heather, bring us home. Yeah, that's, you know, that's mine as well, is the community of, uh, of saints, of disciples who uh, are, doing their best and and trying to help others do their best too on their way back um, to God. And so that has become more important to me, um, more critical to me as I have, have gotten older. Yeah. Well, the name of the book is Marianne Meets the Mormons. It's representations of Mormonism in 19th century France. You can find a link for it in the show notes. Again, another shout out to the folks over at University of Illinois Press. My um, guests have been Daryl Lee, Heather Belknap, and Corey Cropper. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you will be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.
Give me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back. 